Hey, what's going on? It is Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast, a weekly podcast presented by Ticketmaster, where we dive into all things Nets with players, coaches, and a variety of guests. And uh, today it falls into the variety of guest category as we're going to speak with Noah Eagle. Uh, Noah will be joining the Yes Crew this year to do a select number of games as a play-by-play announcer, of course. He is the son of longtime TV voice of the Nets, Ian Eagle. Noah comes to the Nets after four years with the Clippers as their radio voice, a job that he got right out of college when he was at Syracuse University at the famed Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse, which is known to, to produce some of the best broadcasters in the country. And you'll hear the story of how it came to be that he got an opportunity to interview with the Clippers, what it was like to go through that process. I mean, being a a 22-year-old kid has got to fly out to Seattle to meet with Steve Ballmer. Um, Noah grew up around it, and you'll hear about his story and his connection to his dad. And the thing you'll come away from with Noah is it's not just about he's Ian Eagle's father or he is very much influenced and sounds like him and resembles him. But Noah is an outstanding communicator, just as his father is. But in his own right, standalone, Noah is an outstanding communicator and broadcaster who is now going to be one of the top voices at NBC. He's calling their Big Ten football game every Saturday night. He'll be doing Big Ten college basketball coming up. He will be going to Paris and working with NBC in the Olympics next summer. Uh, he has done everything the right way and just about how everything is about the process, right? Everything, the, you, you go through a good process and then the results take care of themselves. So we'll talk to Noah about the process of growing up around this business and that how, how that has served him in what he does today. Uh, before we get to Noah, just a quick word, because I know, you know, the Nets right now, um, as we record this, it was coming after a loss to Milwaukee and right before their game with the Clippers. And we're going to talk to Noah also about uh, some of the Clippers stuff. It's kind of like timely with him having been the voice of the Clippers over the last four years. The thing that stood out to most, the, the most with me with this net team right now is that seven games into the season, they have, they have found an identity. It doesn't always happen so quickly. A lot of times you have to go through trials and tribulations to stumble upon your identity. Often in the NBA, you have 20, 25 games to do so. But the Nets have stumbled on their identity, which is something that Jacques Vaughn pointed out early on in the offseason, in training camp, in the preseason. We want to be a team that is relentless, that plays hard, that competes. And they have done an unbelievable job this early in the season. I mean, just, just look at some of the quotes from players and coaches around the league who have played the Nets. The fact that they have been able to show up as a hard-playing team that plays fast, that can, that can really assert their tempo on games, that is competing, and that is deep. You know, there's a depth to this team. Jacques Bon is not afraid to play anybody on his roster 
and there have been about a dozen guys who have contributed to winning games this year. Now, the big step here for Jacques Vaughn, the big challenge for him right now, is knowing that there has been a lot of things to be encouraged about with this net team. This is, we are encouraged by the way they've played. Three and four in a really difficult schedule with some games that could have gone the other way. But how, you know, being and competing and being competitive is different than winning. And the big challenge for Jacques Vaughn right now is to make sure that you continue to be encouraged and his guys are encouraged and they feel like they can win every game. And that line where you don't cross into being discouraged. You want to make sure that encouraged doesn't become discouraged. Because the thing that's going to keep guys playing hard and being happy in their roles, even though their minutes maybe aren't where they want them to be, is because you're winning. And if you're not winning, at least you're building toward winning and guys can see it and feel it. And the challenge for a coach is to make sure that doesn't drift off into being discouraged because you're not winning these games. I think we have seen enough. I get the feedback from fans on Twitter, at BKNets Radio, the way to reach us on Twitter during games. Um, I see what's going on. People are encouraged. People are excited. People are, are looking forward to these games. They want to see what this team can do next. They feel like they go into every game knowing that they can compete and they can beat anyone. They've shown that. They were right there with the Celtics. They were right there with the Bucs early in the year. You know, Cleveland had a lead late. Dallas, Luka hits a ridiculous shot to beat them. But they're in every game. How do you keep that encouragement going without becoming discouraging? That's the challenge for Jacques Vaughn. And you tend to forget, though, that he's been without a couple of starters. You know, Cam Johnson hasn't been around. Nick Claxton hasn't been around. Yes, this is going to create some complications down the road when it comes to guys and their minutes and accepting their roles. It's also shown, though, the Nets that they can play a different way, play with some smaller lineups. So there's still a lot to be done, and there's still a lot to figure out. But for the most part, the identity has been established, and we hope that it can turn into winning more games, even though three and four is still pretty good. They might have signed up for three and four before the start of the season, these first seven games. But right now, can we keep that encouragement going. I think Jacques Vaughn can, because if there's anything about Jacques, you know, he is an encouraging person. So, uh, so was Ian Eagle, my good friend of, of a very, very long time now. And, um, I am proud to say that I know Noah Eagle for as long as he's been born. And it's incredibly proud to see what he's doing and how well he is doing it. And I had a great conversation here with Noah. So I hope you enjoy it. Here on The Voice of the Nets, it's Noah Eagle. Before we started recording, we were having issues that only happened when Noah spoke. And I said, well, perhaps we'll do the podcast with just Noah's facial reactions. Um, and I know your generation, because I know this even with my son, they, they, they consume podcasts on YouTube mostly. Whereas I kind of like the theater of the mind. I like to just listen and not be distracted by actually watching the people talk. And I could also multitask when I'm just listening. Do you, do you prefer to watch podcasts or listen to them? 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned I'm an old soul, and before I even say that, I do have to shout out. I do think facial acting is a is a big deal. I think that if you're a good facial actor, I think my dad and I we have a, a power rankings of facial acting, and there's really only one person on the list, and that's Jesse Clemens. He is the best <laughs> facial actor of all time, and when he shows up in a show or a movie, you know that that you're just going to read him. That's it. When he was in Breaking Bad for the final season, you could read him. Friday Night Lights, read him. Game night, when he was not getting invited into the game night home, you could read his facial expression. Guaranteed to be good. Uh, That's no, an I, underrated I, part of acting, though. It's an underrated it part of acting. And, you know, they don't even, you don't even realize it until, like, a normal person tries to act. And they exactly. wonder why, well, they're, they're a little off. What is it? Well, I'm saying my lines are right. No, it's just actors have a charisma and a facial thing going on yeah absolutely 100 100 percent. but no you, you mentioned that i guess i'm an old soul i'm not really a watcher of of any of that type of stuff i would be a listener i, I like to really to your point I, I like to multitask i like to listen and do something else fold some laundry which i shouldn't say i like to fold the laundry but it's a task that has to be done or prepare for a game it's a task that has to be done things like that i'll listen and then get things done that that i need uh, to kind of check off my list yeah, and you are an old soul, and and I say that in, in in as positive a way as I could I could even say it. And you know, radio, you 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 were the voice of the Clippers on radio, and and I have gone decades now on radio, and I and and I love the the medium, and I I think people don't realize just how much different it is from doing television. Uh, and people always say, "What do you prefer?" And I say, "Well, I always prefer radio, only because it's just." It's that theater of the mind and, and being able to create that picture in someone's head as as an old as a new school broadcaster with an old soul. Um, was that something that drew you and made you so good on radio? You know, I don't know. I guess I never really considered it. I do think that doing radio for the Clippers for the last four years alone is what helped to create kind of my extra love for the craft. I already loved it. I already was really interested in it. And obviously being around it growing up certainly helped. And then being able to listen to people who were really good at it, like yourself, you know, being in the New York area where it felt like this was the cream of the crop. It felt like this was the pinnacle. This is where we were all trying to get to. So to be around that, surrounded by it, I think it was like osmosis where you can fall in love with that craft as well. But then doing it alone and feeling like I could expand on it and I could really have my fingerprints all over it, that was both a challenge and something that I didn't really know if I was going to like or enjoy. And there were aspects of it that I didn't like, I didn't enjoy. I, I wish I had somebody with me. I wish I had that camaraderie a little bit more. And then there were aspects of it where you're saying, okay, this is pretty cool. I get to kind of play every role and I get to really make it my own and I get to try to paint that entire picture. And I think the coolest compliments I ever got in the four years there was there were a couple of blind fans, and I'm sure you've had this, that reached out and yeah. said they really appreciated the way I called the game because it allowed them to understand what was happening. There's no better compliment for somebody on radio. Just plain and simple. If you have somebody who cannot see and relies on you 1,000% for ears, eyes, mouth, nose, and every sense in between – and you're delivering, then you're doing your job at a high level. And so I felt good about it. I, I think having fun with it was, was good as well. But yeah, I, I do think that there was part of it of, of being kind of that 
that older feel and feeling like I could connect to a variety of people that allowed me to really expand in the medium. And I, I loved every second of it. My son, Chris, and I had this uh, conversation just yesterday about radio play-by-play because I was, I was listening to one of his demos and we were talking about it. And I said, you know, he said, yeah, I try and picture somebody that, that is blindfolded sitting next to me. And I said, or, or, you know, I've had that experience where people reach out to me that are blind that listen. And I always had them in my mind. That's really what you should be thinking about. Um, you remember the, the Cleveland Cavaliers had an owner, Gordon Gund, who was blind. Yeah. And, you know, Joe Tate, uh, longtime great radio play-by-play voice of the Cleveland Cavaliers um, would broadcast all these games knowing that that Gordon Gunn was sitting near him listening. And that was the only way he could see the game. Talk about pressure. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty remarkable. I, I, it is insane to think that an owner of a team couldn't even see or choose the players based on how they look. They only had to rely on what they heard. They only had to rely on what they were being told. That's that's insane to think in the modern world because you just don't have it anymore. Uh, but yeah, I think that if you have that mentality, and I know that Chris is obviously getting the, the highest level of tutelage he can right now in, in radio play-by-play. Yeah, uh, which is, by the way, how great are those conversations? I mean, I can just, I know that I can relate on a different level, but they're so awesome, right? It's incredible. It, it really is. And, and, and there's a lot of similarities and things that I know uh, I'll, I'll, I'll use from my experience with him and talking to you about your experience now and, and your dad, of course. If anyone doesn't know, your father is Ian Eagle, the longtime TV voice of the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, and you are going to be joining the Yes crew this year doing some play-by-play uh, because Ian and Ryan are very busy and they need some people to step in. I'll be doing a couple games. You'll be doing the, a bunch of games this year. So um, I, I can only imagine how surreal that is for you to be stepping into your father's role on the Nets broadcast, something that you have only known in your life. I mean, you don't know a world where Ian Eagle is not the TV voice of the Brooklyn of the Nets, New Jersey or Brooklyn. That's correct. Yeah, it's correct. I, I, when I was talking with everybody at Yes Network, there was a discussion of changing my name to Nyan just to keep it, you know, <laughs> Very, the format the same, and I think that they were. Or maybe you should have gone that. with. Or maybe you could have gone with Ian. Yeah, right. Yeah. Shock the world. Yes. Shock the world out of nowhere. Honestly, that would really put shockwaves to awfulannouncing.com. I don't think they'd know what to do with it. They'd struggle <laughs> with the headline. Um, maybe if you were going to be crying, I would have considered it, but that wouldn't have gone well for you. So I, I think that we're going to stick with what we've got. But no, nah, surreal is the right word. And you said it. I think about all of the the memories that I had as a child and all the teams that I can remember. And I know that you had Big Bird on the podcast a couple of weeks back, and it was a great episode. And you guys reminisced about some awesome teams and some awesome moments and some players that really were near and dear to my heart. But I was there for all of them. So you can go all the way back from Stefan Marbury when I was real young through the Jason Kidd years to the Courtney Lee 12-70 and 70 team to – Post that, the Darren Williams, New Jersey ends. I was at the final game in Jersey at, at the Prudential Center, which was fantastic. And then the start of the Brooklyn era and the Paul Pierce and KG. And then eventually to the KD and Kyrie and the eighteen nineteen team, which is one of my favorites. So I've been there through all of it. You know, being with the Clippers was great because I got to learn the history of that team. And I got to really immerse myself in it. But this is so much easier. It's just it's ingrained in me. And so to have that, and to your point, to have something where 
I can kind of step into the chair that I've seen my dad in my entire life. It's going to be weird, I think, for the first couple. It's going to be strange. It's going to feel strange, not just the same old. It's going to be that pinch myself moment. But I think once I have one or two under the belt and with Frank, the grace and the truck and with Sarah Kustak and RJ and, and some others, which has been reported next to me, potentially, I think it'll make it easy the rest of the way. You, you though, you, you, you're now in national TV booths. I mean, voice of the big 10 on their Sunday, on their Saturday night college football game. I mean, you're in a, you're in a big booth. And, and and not that that yes is a step down, but I mean you're not going to be intimidated by that situation even at a young age. And um, being in those booths though as a kid, I know your dad would take you to to games, NFL games on Sunday, and you'd be in the booth. And you mentioned all your time around the Nets. I would imagine that you've just been comfortable, and that has to have been one of the big reasons why you sound so comfortable early on here in your career? I, I think so. I think that it's like anything. And I'm sure Chris feels the same way just being around you his whole life where now he's getting into it and and you walk into these these environments and it's just second nature. It's just somewhere you've been before. It's like anything else, right? If you, I think that it's, we look at all these sons of NBA players that eventually get to the NBA. They act like pros at a younger age, right? They're rookies. Steph Curry was doing everything in his power to make sure he was in a good position right away. Or Jalen Brunson felt like a pro as a rookie. Well, he was around it his entire life. Kobe Bryant, the same deal. I think you could go down the long list. I think it's true of anything, right? If you're from a family of lawyers, you don't need that first experience as much. You have that first experience just from being around lawyers your entire life. And you could go through all the different examples of musicians or actors or artists of any kind or doctors. I just think that's osmosis. I think it's natural. And so what I always say, I think everybody just expects that, okay, well, you knew what to do on the broadcasting side. Yeah, that's great. And maybe that's true that I got to see how you prepare for a game and I got to see how when you sit down for a pregame, how you dedicate your time and, and all that stuff. What always stood out more than anything else was the interactions with everybody, the friendships with everybody, the real relationships with everybody. And I think I saw that from my dad from the start where every game I went to with him, every person he saw, it was a smile on his face. It was a smile on their face. They were talking about genuine interest in each other's lives, genuine things happening in each other's lives. And there was a real connection that he built with all those people, all different roles. And that's what I felt like I took more than anything. So, yeah, there was the comfort in the booth and there was a comfort in these environments. But I really feel like it was that camaraderie factor that I always craved. And I think we all do that locker room feel that we don't get because we're, we're clearly not athletically inclined to do it. But that's what I feel like I had to step up, so to speak, just like that that fresh start, that head start that maybe others didn't recognize because they're so focused on the craft itself, which isn't the worst thing in the world. I just felt like that balance was really where I thrived. I have watched you play basketball, and I think you're selling yourself short when it comes to ability. <laughs> you have game. I don't know. You have I game. Maybe, maybe I had game. I don't think I've shot right. enough in the last four-plus years. I will tell you a funny story, though, was I, I was a very – I've always been probably a little overconfident, which has helped me in some ways, but has hurt me in others. And I think my dad would be the first to tell you that I, I probably need to pump the brakes a little bit on a couple of things I've said in the past. I'd say I've gotten better, 
over the course of the last couple of years. But my first year with the Clippers, we had Chauncey Billups was the TV analyst slash pregame analyst. And I was, I was working the pregame shows with him and we got fairly close. And you know what? I was looking at it. I'm saying, all right, Chauncey Billups, end of his career, tore his Achilles, 44 years old. I think I could, I could, I could get it. I could get two points off. That's what I said. I could get two points off. So I challenged him. I was like, hey, Chance. And he's like, what's up? And I, I was purposefully, I think, shooting poorly at this shoot around beforehand. I was like, You're I'm going to miss a bunch of shots. A little bit. A little <laughs> bit. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to miss a couple shots here that I know I can make and see if yeah. he takes the bait. And he's like, he's like, what's wrong with your jump shot, man? And I go, I bet you I could take two points off you. And he's like, not a chance. I go, <laughs> Guarantee taking the two points. I'm my puffing my chest out. He might have been an like, old defensive player in the NBA at one point, wasn't he? Uh, he might have a been. couple times, yeah, yeah, yeah more yeah. than a couple times actually. Yeah. He was an outstanding defender, and uh, so we said, "All right, next week we're gonna we're gonna do this. We're gonna film it for the pregame show. It's gonna be a whole thing." <laughs> I had exactly what moves I was gonna do in my head already planned out, and literally like three days before we were gonna do it. Rudy Gobert tested positive for COVID and saved my ass, Chris. (laughs) Completely saved my ass because I would have gotten cooked. I would have had no chance at scoring on him. So then I saw him at the end of last year, and I was like, hey, man, this is the last opportunity that you got to play me and and prove that you're better. He goes, it's all you. You got it, man. I'm too out of shape now. So I'm going to take that as a W. I will take that as a W. But, yeah, I would say if I had any game, it's way in the past. Well, but but regardless, uh, you know, you touched on something I want to go back on. We, talk, we were talking about the comfort level and and growing up in that environment like athletes who have been sons of great players have done. You know, there's obviously a lot of talk when 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 you get an opportunity or I- any other uh, son of a famous broadcaster gets an opportunity. That whole thing of, well, you only did it because of who your father is. But there is a there's also something about it, a couple of things that that make it. Um, you know, where, where counteract that is that if you're an employer, I mean, obviously you have a wealth of experience from being around your father that goes into the person we're hiring. You know, I'm hiring somebody now who has been around this his whole life. Yeah. He might be 25 years old, but he's been around this his whole life. He's comfortable. He's going to walk into a press box. He's going to know eight people. And I don't have that that learning curve. Yeah, listen, I, I'm not trying to downplay the actual job because we can talk about being in the booth or you know being a spotter or a stat guy or just being around it and walking around. The, the, but actually doing the job is something that you have to come to terms with yourself. And I've always said this about sons of great broadcasters is you may get an opportunity, but number one, people are going to expect more of you because of who you are. So that now sets the bar higher for you that you have to jump over. Um, and, and also, you know, that comfort level of having been around it. And also, you're only going to make it on your own merits because you put, you put it on the tape. It's you. Your father can't help you. What, can't help what's on the tape, right? So, so all these things go into, I think, it, it's, it's complicated. It's way more... Um, complicated than people go well you you're there because of your father well how have you processed that yeah i think i think you hit on a lot that that is correct i would say the best way that i tend to put it to people who are somewhat 
ignorant to kind of how it works or, or ask me and are genuinely curious as to how it works is the best way I can say it is the door can get cracked open for me, right? And the door can get cracked open for anybody, but then you still have to kick it down. So I can get a foot in, but the foot isn't going to keep me in there, right? The foot's just the foot. I have to, it's up to me personally to now get the rest of my body into the room. And that's how I felt, you know, early in the career. And I got very fortunate because it's, it's more than just having a, a father or a family member or something that, that is going to help you get sort of opportunity. It's about timing and circumstance too, because if there isn't an opportunity available more oftentimes than not, they're not going to just happen to create one for you. So I got very lucky that the Clippers were going to have an opening when I was graduating college. And I had a professor that got asked for some recommendations of names of people that, that maybe could be interviewed as a young opportunity or a young, really just option for them to look into. And I just happened to be one of eight names she gave them. So, you know, from there now, it's still, to your point, you pop on the tape, hopefully the tape speaks enough. Now, I think part of it was the tape was good enough, but also, hey, to your point, we know that this person, this young man who's 22 years old has been in environments before. So if we were some, by some crazy standard, because I don't think they said, we're going to hire him when they decided to give me an interview. They just said, let's see about him. But in the back of their minds, knowing, all right, he might be 22, but he knows what to do. He's lived around it his entire life. He's seen it his entire life. He He's won't embarrass himself. hours talking about the craft with one of the best in the <laughs> yes. world that does it. Yeah. Yes. And I, I was sitting in his office at five, six, seven years old, reading media guides of Jamal Mashburn, just because, because I enjoyed it. Right. Yeah. So I think they knew that in the back of their minds and they knew that I wouldn't embarrass myself or the organization. And then I, I, I personally felt a responsibility and I'll get to the whole, you know, having to be better and live up to the, to the potential, I guess, what, what people expect of you, the expectation plus the hard work factor. But what I really, once I got that job with the Clippers, my goal was I knew that there were, a, there were other people my age that were just as good or good enough to be in that position. So what was my goal? What was, what did I want by the end of my tenure, however long that tenure was, or even just in the moment, I wanted to make sure that I was good for them so that now, hopefully one day they also get hired. Those young people that are also very good. And I, I that was honestly my, I think probably the proudest moment I've had is that the Clippers after I left hired another 22 year old who has no connection but just because he's good, just because he's going to do a good job. And it was clearly because I did a good enough job to at least give them that confidence that it could work again. And it has. Carlo Jimenez is outstanding at the job. He's doing fantastic work with the Clippers on radio. He's going to be a superstar for a long, long time in the profession. So I was excited about that. From the other perspective of the expectation, it just felt like for me, and maybe this is true, maybe it's not, but when I got to college and really lasered in on this, I didn't do anything until I got to Syracuse. But when I got to Syracuse, I said, I'm just going to work twice as hard. I'm going to work twice as hard as everybody else because I have to. And I, again, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's what I felt I had to do. It's what I feel I still have to do. And so I just said, I'm going to put in more hours. I'm just going to put in more work. And I'm going to just work so hard that everybody around me, maybe not the people who don't know me or don't see me, but the ones that see me, are going to have zero doubts as to why I am where I am. 
And that's kind of the mentality I've taken with me. Well, we could just see in, in your answer there and your and what you just said, there's a maturity level um, that I, I'm 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 I know you all your life, but I'm still blown away by it because um, that perspective that you just that you just articulated about getting in that job and and not thinking, well, I'll show everybody how good I am or I'll show them why I'm better than everybody else. And not even just get this opportunity because of who I am. No, your your thought process and your mindset was um, I want to make sure that that I perform well at this job so that others can be helped by it. And I think that's an outstanding attitude to have in anything in life. I mean, anything you do, you should be looking to how could I serve others? And I think it, whether or not that's the main goal, it still is the something that will, um, I don't know, it's just a mindset that will get, that will, that the world will give back to you in kind. And I, I think that's a, that's a great example for people. And I, and I, I have no doubt, I had no doubt that you would have that kind of perspective knowing who you are. Uh, let me ask you this. You, you said you grew up with it and you watched your dad. Um, did you ever consider anything else? Was there anything else that you, <laughs> or was this like, I, this is just who I am and there's no way I'm doing anything else? Yeah, I don't know if that if you were one of the people I said it to or not when I was very young, but uh, this I've, I've told this story publicly, I'll tell you as well, that when I was young, I don't know what age this stopped other than maybe 18, uh, I told people I wanted to be a TV dentist. Which is not. Wait a minute. That's not a thing. Yeah, no, no. It's you could be you could be confused because everybody. Was confused. I, it was shocking. I think. I think both my parents like looked to, at me. You wanted to play a dentist on TV, or you wanted to be a dentist to the stars, or you wanted to. Yeah. What, what, yeah. what is that? All of it. All of it was was surprising. I think my parents were, were a little bit concerned that maybe I was adopted somehow, or maybe that my dad Hell was questioning whether. Yeah, whether I belong to him, I, he didn't know. I think at this point, but no, I, I would. I don't know how how long I went with that. I think what my mentality was was like Doctor Phil filling a molar or Doctor <laughs> Phil installing a crown. The problem is nobody at at two thirty on a Wednesday is. You know what I really want to see right now, honey? I really want to see how he handles this gum disease. No one is sitting at home and saying that's missing from their life. So. Uh, that was what I wanted to be early. I think like every kid who was into the NBA, I wanted to play in the NBA at one point. But the moment that shifted at least a little bit in my brain and my thought process was I was in fifth grade and we had to read a biography. We were all assigned a biography and then we had to come in and make a speech about that person. And I got assigned Bill Gates and I decided because I was always a little extra, I'm going to dress up as Bill Gates. And I'm going to bring a, a fake massive check to the school as if I was Bill Gates. So I got a poster board. My mom and I, you know, did the whole thing, went the whole nine. I brought it in. I, I was fully decked out in Bill Gates clothes. And I <laughs> delivered the whole speech, you know, as if I was Bill Gates. And, and it went very well. And my teacher came up to me after and, and she said, you know, I think one day you're going to have a future in public speaking. And I said, no, nah, I'm going to play a Duke. You know, I'm going to be in the NBA one day. 
But I think it was the first time that at least the thought was put into my head, like, all right, maybe this is just something that I, I kind of naturally gravitate toward. And about seventh grade, I'd say I was 13 or so, is when I really lasered in on, on broadcasting and recognizing how much fun my dad had with it and how excited he was to do it when he woke up every morning. And I think that's what eventually drew me to it. Yeah, and even your, even your brief uh, thoughts about being a TV dentist uh, at the heart of that is being on TV. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't that far off. You just, no, thought, I you just... thought you were creating some niche. <laughs> yeah, I thought I could somehow go full Dr. Phil. Uh, we're going to need to replace this molar. It's well, not, you the that. molar's not you. It's the two. You know, can't do it. Well, what you forgot is that there was a there's an element to being a dentist that most people avoid the dentist. Don't want to yeah. be around the dentist. Um, yeah, it's not like the pimple popper lady on TV who it's like gra- it's like something oddly gratifying about watching it. But but that, that I mean, worked. That's that's popular now. Like maybe a TV yeah, dentist would have been there, popular. I don't think there'd be something popular about watching somebody <laughs> get their tooth filled. It just doesn't have the same aesthetic. Uh, well, I guess it's like the center of a Tootsie Pop. The world may never know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, I, you talked about the, the bond of you and your dad, and I'm sure that you had many conversations about broadcasting, but um, sports, I'm sure, as well. I mean, I could do that with my son. We'll, I mean, I think the other day I got back to my hotel room in Charlotte on a Sunday night and called him in his door you know, at, at school and realized we were on the phone for an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. Sports, like nothing else. We just we were talking about the games that day and what's going on, and so um, I'm sure those things happen with you and your dad, and that's kind of brought them together. It was interesting because um, he he was telling me about you know your grandfather and how he, you know Ian's dad sort of learned didn't know a lot about sports, but but learned it and started following the Mets and things. So he had something to bond with 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 Ian over that um anything uh, anything besides sports and and broadcasting that has brought you guys close over the years yeah well I think anybody who is listening to this podcast is probably a big Nets fan and they know that the pop culture knowledge that my dad possesses is almost unfair it's almost a, a level that nobody else can reach and the problem is he expected me to reach that. He expected <laughs> me to be able to say out of nowhere to just say, hey, you really know what that just reminded me of? Thornton Mellon's triple indie. Like no <laughs> seven-year-old should be talking about Rodney Dangerfield in back to school. But I was doing that, right? I was saying, yeah. oh, you just don't know Damone. Like, I'm nine <laughs> years old talking about fast times at Ridgemont High. You know, I... That doesn't exist for the rest of the kids. And then the fact that I was a, a nine-year-old that's now created this like pseudo monster because all I go up to people is like, well, I mean, I mean, you've seen that, right? And everyone's <laughs> like, well, no, why would I see that? I go, well, it's, a, it's an all-timer. And then I look on IMDb, it's like a 6.4, you know, that's... Yeah, yeah, and it was 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say that's, that's probably where we bonded as well. But no, just a little bit of everything. I think that... A lot of his interests have been passed down to me. A, a love for comedy, which comes from a variety of places. Both comes from my grandpa, comes from him as well. And so things that we just share in that sense. And and then, you know, just talking about 
a little bit of all of the world and, and my mom and my sister. And so it's all encompassing at that point, but the pop culture is definitely something that got passed down. And, uh, I can't wait to stifle Sarah Kustak on it. Do you, uh, make him aware of current things in pop culture that maybe he wouldn't be aware of? I know I'm always learning a lot from my son as much as I try to uh, give him the old stuff similar to what you were talking about with your dad. I'll be like, Oh, you remember? And he kind of shows no interest in him. Be like, yeah, but dad, watch this guy. Or have you seen this? <laughs> you know, you got, you should really catch up on Rick and Morty. You know, like he'll give me that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. you try to do that with Ian? Is he open to those kind of things? He is open now to a certain degree. I think I, I stopped on certain things where I recognize, all right, maybe he's not going to be as into this, uh, music, or he has to just find it on his own and then come to me and say, wow, this is actually pretty good. He's, I will say, uh, most of it, I don't even need to tell him about. He's very up to date. I mean, he's just, he just stays current on everything. You can't stump him on anything. He wants to know about everything. And he knows names of, of actors or musicians or, or people that no one else knows. Like, I'm talking about seventh in line as a character actor on the facts of life. From one yeah, episode. well, that that stuff is that the old stuff I know, and we talked about that. He had, he's got to clear stuff. out the hard drive a little bit, but yeah, the new stuff is he's on it. He's on it. That the the, the references he makes on on TV of new and old, it, like it doesn't happen by accident. No, no, it doesn't. It, it's no. it's all genuine, and I think that's what people people don't expect. That people think that he researches it. No, no, no. He just naturally follows it. He's naturally plugged in. So no, I wouldn't say that that. I'm keeping him up to date all that much. Although I will say that that's something that I enjoy doing sometimes with the audience and, and just with people. And one of the funnier things that happened when I was with the Clippers was, so my stats guy for, for most of my tenure there was the late, great Dennis D'Agostino, one of the uh, the greats yeah. of all time in the profession. Absolutely. Who yeah. Unfortunately passed this year and uh, we built a wonderful relationship. He's a one, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. And uh, I well, he maybe made me laugh as hard as any person had last year, because every time during a game when there was three oh five left in a quarter, I would say shout out Pitbull because I just thought it was funny. And Mister three oh five, I just thought Pitbull yeah. was funny. My friend and I had this inside joke about him, and so it was kind of a shout out to him. And then my host loved it, and my my engineer, Big Brother Jake Warner, loved it, and then the fans started to reach out to me. They're like, shout out Pitbull. I, I get people screaming, shout out Pitbull at these games. And so at the end of the year, close to the end of the year, Dennis called me and he was just like, you know, when you first got the job with the Clippers, I was like, what is this guy? You know, he's, he's doing a game completely different than I had ever heard a game being done. And he's just having so much weird fun and saying weird things. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then he goes, I got to be honest with you, the more I worked with you, the more I realized like, it just works. It just, it's just good. And I'm like, oh, Dennis, that's amazing. He goes, I never knew who Pitbull was. And now I know how amazing he is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've somehow made Dennis D'Agostino a Pitbull fan. He somehow now knows about Fireball and time of our lives and these crazy things. You would have never thought about it. So I do love that. And I think that my dad kind of takes that challenge the same way. 
I'm so glad we got to talk about Dennis D'Agostino in the uh, in the podcast because I I, I I was good friends with Dennis for a long time as well, going back to his days with the Knicks. And he's a Fordham guy. And just picture him right now in his honeymooners tie. You know, he was out there <laughs> on the West Coast and always, uh, always loved talking about things back east. He was a he was a New York, New Jersey guy. He just oh man. Yeah, it really was devastating when we lost him this summer. Um not to bring it, you know, let's let's bring it back. Dennis would not want us to wallow in any kind this of uh, sorrow about him right now. He's listening right now. Uh, and you're back on the East Coast after being out your whole life. You're an East Coaster. You're a Jersey kid, New York area, went to Syracuse. And then you go out to be the voice of the Clippers out in L.A. Was there ever a moment where you thought, wow, I could I like this? Or is getting back East something that was important to you? I know your parents are happy about having you back. Well, they say they're happy. We're gonna we're gonna test that out in about <laughs> five six months and see if they're they're sick of me by then. No, but, absolutely not. I, yeah, I I'd say that they were definitely not gonna see your father anyway. So <laughs> yeah, that's a fair. Point. He's never around. Yeah, that's yeah. a fair. I, I would say the 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 best part for my mom is she called me the other day and she's like, "I got to be in the city early on Thursday. Maybe I'll just stay in your apartment." I'm like. Okay, you got it. I'm not even <laughs> going to be here, so I'm going to be on the road anyway. So yeah, take it, no problem. Uh, no, it's been it's been great. I, I would say there are aspects of LA that I really enjoyed, and being outside 24 seven for the most part was great. And when you got home from these road trips, and it was three in the morning, and it was still 60 degrees, that was great. But there were aspects that I really missed about New York. I, I love walking. And being in the city is, I mean, the most walkable place you're going to be. You can't you're walk in, in Manhattan LA. now, right? You're in Manhattan. Yes, yes. Yeah. I can't. You could walk in LA. There's no walk. If you walked in LA, you yeah. were looked at as a crazy person. I've tried <laughs> to do it, and literally, someone pulled over and questioned if I needed help. I didn't yeah. need help. I was just trying to enjoy my Wednesday <laughs> afternoon. But no, it's. I think that part's big. Being near my family has been massive just just great being near a lot of older friends has been awesome to catch up and and reconnect rekindle some of those relationships so it's been it's been perfect to be here the italian food is far superior on the east coast however the yes. mexican food is far inferior so it's a give and all take right. now, yeah. i would take italian and the bagels and all that any day although yeah. now I, I will say anytime i go somewhere where i know the mexican's going to be good i do have to get it I will also say for anybody who's in the city, there's a place that just opened up this summer right when I got back that is an L.A. Mexican place. It's a small chain in L.A. I think they only have three maybe restaurants out there, and they did put it in New York. It's called Soul, S-O-L, and it's it's good. It's right. as good of Mexican as you're going to find on the East Coast. Highly recommend for anybody who was looking for a high-level burrito, maybe a quesadilla, a taco, whatever you like. Yeah, um, but it's been good. don't just yeah that, that and and it's similar to when New Yorkers go out to L.A. and then you know I remember Larry King opened up a Brooklyn Bagels, yep. which I would go to when we were in Beverly Hills, uh, and I think he imported water from the from Have New to. York or something like that. Yeah, to get the bagel the right way. It's it's bad. It's bad. And everybody out there just said I was a snob. And I said, that's fine. I'm happy <laughs> being a, a snob. bagel snob. Yeah, I'm cool being the bagel and the pizza snob. I, one of my good friends who's from Jersey moved out a year ago to LA and has since moved back around the same time I did here. 
and he was a Syracuse guy as well. And so we were always on the quest to find the best of quote unquote, whatever that was. So we were on our quest to find the best pizza in LA and someone really recommended one spot. They're like, this is the, this is the one, this is the closest yeah. thing to New York pizza. And we go and we're so excited because we've been, we, we never got pizza out there. You just didn't do it because you knew. And so we go to this place and we're really excited. We're building it up and it comes out and we're like, wow, it looks really good. And then we take one bite and we go, this is bad. I mean, this is really <laughs> bad pizza. And then since then, since we've returned here, we've looked back at, we took a photo of the pizza with us because we were so excited about it. And I look back on the photo and I go, that looks bad. I mean, it looks yeah. bad pizza. And I said, we were so, like our, our goggles are so blinded because we wanted it to be so good and it just didn't deliver. But their perspective, it's good. Yes. They don't know good. any better. Yeah, exactly. Until you're exposed to something better, you don't know. I, I thought Taco Bell was high-level Mexican cuisine before I left. Oh, yeah. So Until you got you to know. L.A. and then you realize, you know. I had a I, – I, um, one of the great things about my son going to Fordham and I went to Fordham is that I now have an excuse to go back to Little Italy in the Bronx all the time. Nice. Um, I actually – just yesterday, I had, to, I had to drop him back off at school and, and we had a game in Brooklyn. So I went through – I made the circle around New York. I went from Jersey up to the Bronx, around to Brooklyn, home through Staten Island. I made the complete circle. Um, but I stopped at a, at a I, I went, I dropped him off, and then I had, I go, I'm going to get a slice from a place that I used to go to as a student there. So over 30 years ago, there was a place, shout out to Ivana's Pizzeria on Arthur Avenue, a little, one of these little, you know, whole little divey pizza joint, sliced place. And we, I always just remember them having these huge slices. They were, they were enormous. And my friends and I used to call them slabs. And we would have a break and we'd be like, but let's go get some slabs. And we would go walk to Arthur Avenue and, and get this pizza. And I hadn't had it in over 30 years. And I went back yesterday. I said, you know, I got a little bit of time. Let me get a slice. And the sons of the guy who was there when I was there are now running the place. They said, oh, you just missed dad. He was here a few minutes ago. He still comes around, 85 years old, hangs out. Wow. And uh, I had the slice, and it was like all of a sudden I was 20 years old again. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like, it, it, it never changed. It's an unbelievable New York slice, and it, it tasted the same as it did 30-something years ago, and all those memories just came rushing back. So, yes, pizza in New York, something about East Coast New Yorkers, and pizza, there's a deep emotional connection. No, it's amazing. And I think that you just hit on exactly, the, the part that you just hit on is the key. Because when I got back here and I went back to the the places I would go as a kid or growing up, that first bite, it just feels like home. It just feels right. Just when you pick it up, you know, like a good New, New York, New Jersey kid can just could just feel a slice. Pick it up, go to start eating it, and know the consistency, if it's going to be great or not. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a perfect description. That is 100% right. Uh, Noah, so so we've covered a lot of things here. Let's get to – I wanted to touch because as we're recording this, and this is going to come out uh, right before the Nets play the Clippers, and I know you'll be at Barkley Center uh, for the game, right? You're going to you're gonna come in and, and, and hang out with us there, and I think you're – are you going to – are you going to work between different broadcasts? What are you going to do? Are you going <laughs> to? I will, uh, for the first half, I will be sitting next to to young Carlo Jimenez for the, the Clippers radio just to 
to tune yeah. in and hang out with you guys up there. And then for at least part of the second half, I'll go hang out with Frank in the truck and and get that vibe. So yes, I'll be I'll be dancing between two devils, so to speak. <laughs> well, you know, but you're I you're you're probably a great mentor for that young man who's doing the Clipper game. And I have heard clips, and he is excellent. He is he is outstanding. Um, the Clipper team. Right, the Nets went through this superstar era, trying to, you know, get these star players together, and then added James Harden to the mix. And <laughs> and you know what? You know, people will say, oh, you know, why didn't it work? And and I heard, uh, I heard Evan Fournier on a podcast talk about this, where he made a comment and it made kind of the rounds. Right, so he was like, "No, bro, it did work." And and I say the same thing to people. I'm like, "No, no, no, you don't understand." For the games they were together. It worked like it was as good as it was the highest offensive efficiency in the history of the game. What's the process going on right now with the Clippers and how does adding James Harden to the mix affects it, do you think? Yeah, the Harden part is going to be, I think, the most interesting of all of it, because they had figured out if you watch them to start this season, they were clicking. I mean, they figured out how to mesh. Russell Westbrook with Paul George with Kawhi Leonard and kind of make it so that all of them ate the, the proper amount each night. And then they had their, their depth off the bench just because it was clicking didn't mean that it was good enough to win a championship. And I think that's what they recognized. And they know that this window is, is closing at a fairly rapid rate. You know, when I got there, it was four years ago. And I, so I did the four years with them. And I remember Jerry West, who is, uh, he's basically a consultant, but he's he makes it helps make a lot of decisions there. And he said to me that he thought it was a five year window to win a title with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Well, this is year five of that window, so they knew that if they were going to go for it, they had to go for it. And so I totally understand acquiring James Harden. I totally understand pushing all your chips to the center of the table because they still don't really have their draft capital anyway. It's not like they've got these great young pieces. You know, Terrence Mann is considered a young piece for them. He's 27 years old. And he's mm-hmm. been in the league now. This is his fifth season. Avita Zubac is like the youngest guy on their team who's playing major minutes. He's 26 years old. So it's not like they have this young core that they can be excited about. So they have to go all in. So I get the trade. The reason that I would tell you that I have some faith that it would work there is Toronto. And Teron Liu is known as one of the best adjusting coaches in the NBA. And from my experience being around him as the head coach the last three years, he was an assistant coach my first year, seeing how he handles egos. He is probably among the best in the NBA in terms of coaches at handling egos. And he did it with Kawhi and Paul George. He's, he's gotten them to accept different things over the last couple of years. He did it with Russell Westbrook. I mean, think about where Russell Westbrook was. And where he is now, he is shooting a career best 42% right now from three. And there's a couple reasons for that. One of them is former Nets assistant, Sean Fine, who has worked with him every single day to improve his jump shot. Fine, shout out. Nice. And Sean Fine does that with everybody, by the way. Like Terrence Mann could not shoot the three when he got to the NBA and has now become a 40% three-point shooter in large part, thank you, to Sean Fine. And thank you to Bo Levesque, another former Nets assistant, and Kenny Atkinson, the first year that Kenny was gone from Brooklyn, he was with the Clippers. And so I think they, they took a little bit of that 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 stay ready, that building culture, and, and applied it to some of those quote-unquote younger pieces. But Teron Lewis is so good 
at managing those egos. He did it in Cleveland when he had LeBron, he had Kyrie, he had Kevin Love, the star power. But then you have J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert and guys who have fairly high opinions of themselves who are willing to accept whatever roles they have. And obviously then you add pieces like RJ and, and complimentary guys for the rest of the team that were perfect. But but he was the, the guy that kind of glued it all together. And if you remember the year they won the title, David Blatt was still the coach for the first half of the year. T. Lou got thrust into the role, and that's when they took off as a team. That's when they eventually go all the way to the final and come back from 3-1 down. It's because he knows how to motivate, and he knows how to massage the egos. And I, I really, I was curious as to why that was. I was really curious as to why a guy like Teron Lou could command so much respect. And so I asked him to his face. I was just like, dude, what is it? Why is it? Why are you such a good coach, essentially? And he said two things that really stood out to me. He said, one, I was a role player. I said, yeah. He goes, that means I had to battle every single day to last in the NBA for 10 years, which he did. And he won two titles. So as a role player, he said, one, everyone respects that I battled my ass off. And two, I can relate to every person on the team. I can relate to the role players on the team. And I can relate to the stars on the team because I played with stars. And that leads me to the second point he made which was he has respect because he played with Shaq, Kobe, Michael Jordan, Tracy McGrady, prime Dwight Howard, and the list goes on and on and on. He played with some of the biggest names the game has ever seen. And so when you have that, you have a guy with that experience. Now I've watched as Kawhi Leonard, as Paul George, and as I'm sure James Harden at some point will go up to him and say, well, what did Kobe do in this, in this situation? Mm -hmm. What did Michael do in this situation? And so I do think that would be the reason that it has a chance to work. On the other side, there's one ball. I mean, it's the same discussion as the Nets, right? There's one ball. All four of those guys are likely going to be Hall of Famers. Three of them are locks right now. And, and then if they win, Paul George will get in as well. But they're all likely Hall of Famers. You've got four Hall of Famers on the floor at the same time, and they're all fighting. The only guy of them that has that title is Kawhi Leonard. He's the only one that has no pressure on him, realistically. Although some people would still argue he does. The other guys have a lot of pressure to sacrifice the right amount. So I'll be curious to see what it looks like moving forward. Great players figure it out. I think that we saw that with the Nets. When they were all healthy and together, they figured out how to play. And uh, and they all, yeah. I, you know, Noah, I, when you're talking about Tyron Lue there, I couldn't help but think of how this now weaves back into our conversation about your experience growing up and how valuable that would be to a broadcaster and why someone would hire you knowing that they had you had all that experience being around your father being around other broadcasters being in the boots and stadiums because it's the same thing you're talking about with Tyron Lue you know he played with great players he might not have been the star he was sort of in the background just soaking it all in and he has all these great experiences that he can call upon I love it when this the the conversation comes back full circle <laughs> that's professional there, work right there chris <laughs> there are a couple of things i want to go back to uh to go back to before i let you go because you've been very generous with your time and i really appreciate that um in in regards to your 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 story here in the clippers okay and you you, you mentioned two things that we've talked about the clippers and we talked about you being a kid doing a report on bill gates all right well, <laughs> Well, now to get the Clipper job, you have to go interview with the owner of the Clippers, who was the guy who started Microsoft with Bill Gates, right? Steve Ballmer. 
I mean, now you're you're 22 years old. I think you're 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 a senior at Syracuse, basically, or maybe you just graduated. And now you're being summoned across the country to go meet with Steve Ballmer. I mean, what can you articulate that experience for us? Unique for sure. I don't think I'll ever get an experience quite like it. And to your point, that I, I, it was funny because that thought did cross my mind. The Bill Gates to Steve Ballmer thought when that happened, because I didn't know I was going to be interviewing with Steve until I interviewed with the Clippers. So I got a call. I was still in school at that point. I think it was right after the right after we got back from the NCAA tournament. Syracuse lost in the first round of Baylor in Salt Lake City. I, I flew back and I had been doing a, a radio show on Monday evenings. So I was driving to my radio show. And I got a call from an L.A. number I didn't have. I answered it. It was a, a big, booming voice by the guy, a guy by the name of Nick Davis, wonderful man from Brooklyn originally. And he basically said, Ralph Lawler is retiring after 40 years with the Clippers. We're looking for a replacement. Your name was given to us. We'd like to interview you and audition you next week. And I was like, I thought I was being punked. I thought Ashton Kutcher was going to pop out something. I thought there's no way. But sure enough, they were, it was truthful. So I flew out, I interviewed with the team and auditioned that day with Corey McGetty and went well enough that I got back the next day and my, I just started working with my agent and he called me or texted me and he was like, Steve Bomber wants to meet you next week in Seattle. It's like, whoa, all right. I guess this is, this is a good sign. So I just flew out Seattle and I remember there's a couple of things I remember. First thing I remember was when I got there, it wasn't Seattle. It was Bellevue, Washington, which is mm-hmm. beautiful. I mean, that's where all of the, the, you know, tech billionaires live. And so it is pristine in every way, shape and form. I was yeah. blown away with how nice this area was and the hotel was very nice. And so I remembered that second thing I remember is what I had for lunch that day. I went, I, I, showered and got into my suit which was the wrong choice don't do that then go get something to eat you're just risking so much so i'm in my very it's a very nice suit i still have it i wore it recently actually for our biggest game this year uh football wise it's this light blue suit that always kind of pops out and i decided you know it'd be a really good idea right now you know what i could get it's it's two minute walk or whatever eight minute walk i'm gonna go to california pizza kitchen that's gonna be smart so I go there and I get a pea soup and a pizza. And I'm like, this is going to fuel me for this interview. And I eat it in a full suit. And then I walk back to the hotel. I, that's what I remember more than anything is how stupid oh. that was. Like I oh. easily could have just gone in normal clothes and then changed into my suit. But I decided it'd be a good idea. You know what? I'm going to get suited up and eat a pizza. So I did that. And then I go to interview with Steve and I remember that they they reach out to me and they say, please call when you get here so we can give you directions for the elevator. And I was <laughs> offended. I was like, man, they must think I'm so young. I don't know how to use an elevator or something. And I, I get there and there's no buttons. And I go, okay, I, I get it. So they call me, they go, you take elevator seven and it pops open. And I walk in, they go, floor 87 coming up. I'm like, what? And it just yeah. shoots you like Willy Wonka <laughs> at the end of Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory. It shoots me up. Gene Wilder. I wish he would have been there. Would have calmed my nerves. Like you're an but, Oompa Loompa. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And so I get out there. They say, all right, go wait in, in this room. Steve will be in there in a couple minutes. 
beautiful scene. It's overlooking this body of water. It was amazing. And I'm waiting there and he gets in there and he goes, I said, Hey, Mr. Bomber, it's great to meet you. Call me Steve. And he sits down, he was sitting kind of on his leg, the entire interview. And it was an hour and a half straight of just a conversation and a lot of questions. And, and he took a genuine interest in things I had to say. And I felt really good about after the Clippers interview and audition, I felt really good after this one. I remember calling back to my parents and they're like, how'd it go? And I was like, I don't think I'm going to get the job. I just, I disagreed with him on a lot. I, <laughs> I went against him on a, a lot of things. And they're like, really? really? Like what? And one of the questions he asked me, and this is all comes back to growing up in the New York area and listening to you and listening to my dad and listening to Mike Breen and listening to everybody else that's been in this market. He asked me, what's your position on being a homer? And I said, I will never be a homer. I just, it takes away your credibility. I said, I grew up in the New York market. Nobody's a homer there. If you're a homer in New York, you're looked down upon. That's a problem. And so he said, I disagree. I go, well, I disagree with you. I, I don't know what to tell you. And he goes, well, let me tell you my mentality. And he explained it. So then I explained a little bit further what I, what I felt. And he came to terms with it, but he's like, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I still don't agree with it, but I see where you're coming from. So after that, I'm like, there's no way. But apparently he, he I guess, appreciated my honesty and, and was willing to to listen a little bit more. And uh, I, it was all good. The only time I ever heard from him about that was my first year was the third preseason game I ever did. So the first two, we were in Hawaii, which was unbelievable. Although the second one was against the Shanghai Sharks, which was a challenge. And then we get back. And we play this team from Australia. And on the Australian team was Mello Trimble, who was a Maryland, University of Maryland star. Mm-hmm. He was awesome. He goes undrafted and he was trying to make his way back to the NBA, but now he's playing with the NBL. And Mello Trimble was cooking the Clippers. I mean, he had maybe 16 points midway through the second quarter. He was making absurd shots, absurd step back threes floaters in the lane over the top of Mavitsa Zuba, like things that he would never have made. And I'm going nuts. I'm like, oh, mellow tremble, ridiculous. And I remember my boss came up to me and she said, hey, Steve's listening. He said, it's really, really good. I'm like, oh, great. She goes, he just said maybe a little less enthusiastic on Australia, <laughs> just slightly. I go, that I can do. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So from that point on, never heard, never heard anything regarding it. No, and that's and, and the thing about being a homer is like I, I think anybody can listen to me and know emotionally that I'm pulling for the Nets. Correct. I mean, I know my I know my audience is Net fans and mostly Correct. and they want to they and they want to hear it from a Nets perspective, but at the same time, um, you want to be professional and you want to present the game in a professional manner. And also I've always said that, you know, even people that I've worked with before over the years, it's like the fans know. The fans are not stupid, and I can't tell them things are great when things are bad, because then and and on the flip side of that, they'll never believe me when I tell them it's good. So yeah. if I'm quick to point out when things are not working right or things are not good or this is not good, then when when I do tell you to be optimistic, you're going to have trust in me, and I think that's kind of what it's that's the essence to me of being a broadcaster for a team. Yes, a hundred. And the way I described it to Steve was exactly what you said. I said, let's say that this is down the middle and then on either side is the complete extremes. 
I'm not directly in the middle. I said I'm skewed towards the one side, but I'm also not directly on the extreme side. I said yeah. there's got to be a balance there. And I think actually there was a great example that I remember I was listening to your guys' broadcast. I think it was two seasons ago where it was Nets Heat, and I, I think Bam Adebayo hit a big-time game winner. And I remember you called it as the highlight, but then you quickly framed it in the Nets' point of view. And that's all you have to do. If you're a voice of the team, you still owe it to your audience to call the highlight. You know, the other example is every single time I see the play of Kobe Bryant dunking over Chris Humphreys and Gerald Wallace at Barclays Center. Might have been the first year in Brooklyn, actually. It should have been the first. I guess 100% of Gerald Wallace was there. First year in Brooklyn, dunking over the two of them. Every time, it's my dad's call. Like, there's still a source of pride that means that you did a good job on the call. Now, was he excited that the Lakers went up on the Nets in a critical moment of the game? Probably not. No. He very much would like to see the Nets win every single game. And he'd very much like to see the Nets play well every single game. And highlights be in the Nets' favor. Every, But it's just not how the NBA works. It's not how sports work. It's going to happen in the other favor. So you, you still owe it to yourself and your audience to do the plays justice. And that's essentially what I try to tell them. Let me slip this in here. Is there a story you could tell us that would embarrass your father? <laughs> uh, this one would be fairly good. I mean, I, I told this when he won the Marty Glickman Award at Syracuse my senior year, and people loved it. People came up to him, I think, all about this after, came up to me. So when, I don't know if you know this or not, but when, when Uber started, have you heard this story? I have not heard that. I, okay. I don't know. So my dad's also, he's just not someone who likes to adjust. He, he's, he's stubborn. No, he's very routine-oriented, yes. Very much so, very much so. So, for example, when the iPod first came out, he goes, I'm good, I have a Walkman. Like, he, he wanted to stay with what was in the past. Like, I have my CDs, I have my CD player. Like, no, this is better, though. It's all in one place. He goes, nah, too much work, too much. And then finally, I think against his will, my mom got it for him, against his will. And within a week, he's like, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. So it's a lot of that, right? And I remember when Uber first came out, he was like, I'll just take cabs. I don't, why would I do this? Why am I giving my info away and all of that? I don't want to, what am I trusting a random car and a random person, right? Which a lot of people felt, I guess, but he was very adamant for much longer than all those people. This lasted maybe a full year after Uber really hit for him to get on and, and join the crew. So my mom, my sister, and I, we had all been Uber users at this point. And so finally, we somehow convinced him his off-season in the summer, hey, just join Uber. It's going to make your life easier when you're on the road. There's certain things you could, it's just going to be good for you. He's like, fine. So he's sitting in his office, and he's like, all right, I'll, I'm going to join now. So five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by. I'm kind of off in my room. My mom is off somewhere else. My sister's downstairs. And he's like, Noah. I'm like, yeah. And I go over. He's like, I just, I, I, how many questions do you have to answer for this? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, a couple. He's like, it just feels very personal. I'm like, yeah, just answer whatever they ask you. It's fine. Like, it's all good. <laughs> I just thought he was being ridiculous about it. I thought he was just saying, this is ridiculous that I have to give any of this information, my phone number or anything like that. And so five more minutes go by and he's like, this is insane. I'm giving my social security number. And I'm like, all right, hold on. So now I go in there and I'm like, oh, you're doing something wrong here. I'm like, what's happening now? What, what do you, let me look. 
And it go, it, I look and it says, congratulations, you've been approved to drive for Uber. <laughs> he registered himself to be an he Uber driver, driver, not an Uber rider. And yeah, his, his rating's very oh, low, my so it's not good. It's not going well. But uh, yeah, that one. Did he give it, did he give it a shot? <laughs> no, I don't think he did. That, I think he quickly called and said, how do I get rid of this? They got rid of it for him. And ever since his his uh, his passenger stuff has been fine. But yeah, that was a tough one for him. It took a, it took a long time for him to register it, too. <laughs> You're doing something wrong here. Um, he went viral a little bit when we were on, he was on my podcast earlier and I asked him, um, about a movie that made him cry yeah. and he talked about the notebook. Uh, I know you have an affinity for the movies. Um, so do I, and so does Ian. Uh, I always, I would kind of go back to the Jimmy V thing and, and his speech about everybody should laugh, cry and think every day. So, um, what, what, is there a movie that made you cry? Are you a crier, Noah Eagle? I would say for the longest time I wasn't, and there was only one movie that, that got me bad when I was young. Now, there's different types of crying. Like, I was really young watching some movies that maybe I shouldn't have, and my dad will tell you the story <laughs> of me watching uh, Ben Affleck's Daredevil and crying because of something that happened in that movie when I was five yeah. or however old I was when the movie came out. Uh, that one wasn't maybe emotionally something that made you emotional as well. Yeah, I would tell you that the one movie that got me, and I remember vividly watching it with my mom and sister, and because I think my dad had already seen it, which is the case many times because he's on the plane or whatever and he's watching all these by himself, like the notebook with a burly bearded man. I I would (laughs) say that the the one was the pursuit of happiness with Will Mm. Smith and Jaden Smith, and Mm. I don't, I I remember the exact moment in the movie. I, it was like snot cry. I couldn't control myself. It was like, I don't think sounds were coming out. I think it was one of those where oh, wow. I was like so emotional yeah. over what happened was Jaden Smith lost his little superhero action figure when they were getting yeah. on the bus. And as they drove away and it was in the street, I just blew up. I just blew up in that moment. I could not, I could not do it. But as I think I've gotten a little bit older now and, and gotten into my adult life, I've become more emotional and willing to kind of let it loose watching movies. I, I held it in for a long time. When do you have kids one day? Oh, man. Well, I, heard, I think my dad, the one more. movie, I will say this, the one movie that my dad has not, still not watched, that I've told him he has to. He, he watched the first, I think, 20 minutes on a plane and probably wasn't in the right mindset and turned it off. But I know that one, he'll enjoy it, but two, he'll ball his eyes out, and you might have seen it and felt the same way, is Interstellar. If you've oh, yes. seen it. Oh, yeah. Like, that it's is... a Christopher I, Nolan I, film with Matthew McConaughey, and yeah, trying to I connect cried. with his daughter when he's in space. space. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I man. cried, and I, yeah. I don't have kids yet that I know. <laughs> I just, I, I couldn't contain it because I could feel yeah. all the same emotions. So 100%, I think you're you're 1,000% right. I will say there was one movie that he didn't mention that he did cry in, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it. Next time you have him on, you're gonna have to ask him again. Oh, he's holding out on us. Oh yeah, he's holding out on us. Um, what about laugh? What makes you laugh, Noah Eagle? Do you have the same kind of sense of humor as your father, or would you describe it differently? I do. I think I think very similar. I think one thing that makes both of us laugh is when my mom and sister for whatever reason they they're the type of people that when they start laughing they can't stop 
and then they can't <laughs> speak and they try to speak over the laughter and it's so bad that they're making these weird noises as they're trying to get words out that it just makes the two of us start laughing too so it's one of those yeah. i would say that's high on my list uh but i i do love uh, i love laughter i love comedy i love anything that's going to provide that sort of relief i think that's important who's your favorite uh like like comedian that's working today like guy that I know the young people are really, especially with social media, comedians have gone to another level. Um, who's somebody that that you enjoy? I don't think it's, it'd be hard to pick one. I do really enjoy, I like Bill Burr. I think he's smart. I think that he sees things in a, in a unique way, in a different way. And the, the way that I like to judge comics, and I, I don't know, if, I can't remember if you asked my dad anything about this. I know that his dad, his favorite comic of all time was was George Carlin. And I mm-hmm. tend to agree with that. I think George Carlin was unbelievable. Really? And I watched the documentary about him and it was just so interesting to kind of get that peek behind and see what he was all about and see what made him him. But I love, I love the craft of that as well. I love kind of seeing the craft. Uh, I love going to comedy shows if I can and kind of seeing these, these newer comics up and coming. There are a lot of really good ones right now. And there are, to your point, the TikTok stuff i think has really blown up a lot of them you know the 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 matt rice of the world who has really just kind of become a phenomenon out of nowhere but there are there are others that i think are just really smart and are starting to get specials and they're starting to get some attention you know i think kevin hart early in his peak was really entertaining to me and and always made me laugh i think there, there are a lot that really made me laugh but bill burr is one that i feel like anytime i see something of him i'm consistently at minimum chuckling which is all I asked for. I have to watch the uh, the Netflix uh, movie that he made about the dads. Have you have you seen that yet? I don't think I've seen it yet. Yeah, I got to watch that. I, that's one I've got on my uh, on my list for a flight somewhere. Download oh, that's, that, baby. That's big time. Yeah, I would agree with you. I'll, I'll have to add it to mine as well, which is a ever growing, as you can imagine, because every time I finish a series or a movie, I get a call from you know who, and he's like. You got to add seven more to your list. I'm like, seven more? What, what is this? This is a this is a full-time job on top of a full-time job. Yeah, no, you spend a lot of time on airplanes. And yeah. uh, not always conducive to getting work done because it's a tight space. So sometimes just just watch a movie. Just, just relax. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, finally, I always ask people if you, could, if you could put something outside the Oculus at Barclays Center that would sum up your a slogan or something you live by, something you want to get out to the masses everybody would see it is there something that you can can put up there to to tell people so i would say i'll, I'll go back to what i actually used on my high school yearbook quote because it goes back to what we talked about earlier and it's something that i just have felt for a long time and it is leave things better than the way you found them that's that's how i always live that's how i feel like everybody should live of putting good and and allowing that good to now matriculate into a situation. And then when you're no longer in that situation, hoping that it continues. And I felt that from when I was in high school to college to professional life. And so that's kind of how I live and, and try to make sure that I'm maintaining that. And as long as I, I keep that perspective, I know that I'm kind of heading on the right path. And that's all I can ask for. Leave things better than you found them. Yes. Be that succinctly summed up by Noah Eagle. We really appreciate you doing this, Noah. We've kept you a long time. Uh, and I thank you for joining us. This was really fun. Chris, this was a blast. This was an honor, man. Are you kidding me? I, I've been 
long awaiting a chance to join the Voice of the Nets podcast. So this is uh, this was big time. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Noah. My thanks to the great Noah Eagle, uh, such an impressive young man who is, uh, there is no ceiling for Noah when it comes to broadcasting. Uh, he, is, he, is, he is a rising star and he's just going to keep rising. So we really enjoyed talking to him, uh, enjoyed his stories, hope you did too. We want to thank you for listening here. Continue to subscribe, give us a good rating, uh, share it on sp- social media. Uh, I really would appreciate that. I, I, I'll leave you with a couple of things. Noah gave us some great stuff to, to, to watch um, and talking about his relationship with his dad when it comes to, uh, to pop culture. Um, and, and I touched on about fathers and sons, and he gave us a great movie there about the pursuit of happiness and, and, and the emotion of the story between a father and son. Somebody asked me recently what my favorite novel was. And it used to be something different than what it is today. I would probably used to, in the old days, before I had a family, I would quickly say, uh, uh, you know, This Side of Paradise by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then it switched. I, I had had a, I had, we, Laura and I had Christopher, and he was about a year or two old. And I read a book by Cormac McCarthy called The Road. And it's not an uplifting sort of book in terms of its, uh, what it's about. It's kind of an apocalyptic thing, a post-apocalyptic tale, but it involves a father and a son and a father trying to navigate a very troubling post-apocalyptic world and try and find a future for his son. And it's really moving. And I think it hits you in a way that's probably different when you have a child as opposed to before. Um, so I would recommend that for anyone who wants to dive deeper into that father-son relationship. And I was thinking about this the other night, too. I stumbled just – I actually had one night, I think, home in the last two weeks where I can just watch some TV. And, um, and I stumbled on The Godfather. And, of course, I've watched it a thousand million times. But whenever it's on, I just – you just keep watching it. You can't look away. And, and it's cliche to say that The Godfather is the greatest film of all time. Um, and everyone will say that. And, and then a lot of people haven't even watched it would say, oh yeah, the Godfather I've heard, you know, or think it's too cliche to even watch. But let me tell you something the the thing about the Godfather, it's not just some mob movie. It was just some mob movie. It would never go down as one of the great films in the history of cinema. The thing that makes it what it is to me is at the heart of it, it's about family and even diving further into it, the relationship between Vito Corleone and his son, Michael. And that incredible scene where they sit in the backyard and Vito, who's kind of, he had just recovering and he's, and, he's, and he's talking to his son and he's saying, I never wanted this for you. And, and Michael going into the family business, knowing that relationship and how it had, it had twisted and turned over the course of the film at the heart of the Godfather is about father and son. And that's emotional for a lot of people. And that's why it connects regardless of the subject matter. That's why it connects. Even one of my favorite TV shows, of course, of all time, Ted Lasso that I talk about all the time, right? At the heart of it, 
And the reason it ends the way it does is the bond between father and son, Ted Lasso and his son, who he needs to go home to and be with. Hope I didn't give a spoiler alert, but that, you know, that's what you need. That's the heart of Ted Lasso. It's about father and son. And there's a song they play in the final episode by Cat Stevens called Father and Son, which if you have a relationship with your son or your daughter, you will think will we'll, we'll be emotional for you. My thanks to uh, our producer, Steve Goldberg, and Chelsea Jenkins, our engineer. I love the fact that you have tuned in to listen and continue to do so. I love your feedback. Thank you so much for subscribing and tuning in week in, week out to the Voice of the Nets. Talk to you next week.